So for the last couple of weeks, we've taken a look at the landscape of the book of Psalms, just looking at a couple of different places, Psalm 6, Psalm 13. And so Psalm 6 begins, and it effectively asks us the question, or it shows us a picture of what it's like when we are in open rebellion and sin. God is working in our hearts to restore us to right fellowship with him. And, and Psalm 13, when we rolled into it, it showed us a picture really of, of what it's like to pray and to have God just not respond. What it's like to be in this place where God utilizes and he brings silence, he brings this feeling of separation, this feeling of kind of languishing when he brings it to rest in our hearts and how he's uh, using that to leverage all these things in our lives to lead us into greater worship of him. But what Psalm 115 shows us is a picture of what it looks like to worship God when we're surrounded by idols. Now, when you showed up to church this morning, you walked in, you come into a place that is conducive for worship. And so everything is structured and everything is set up to help kind of get your heart ready, engage you in scripture, uh, to sing songs. And we're kind of structuring these things to help you, help you engage in worship. But the majority of your life is spent outside of this place, right? And so none of us, outside of maybe those few indentured servants known as teachers who work here at Bowie, uh, very few of us spend very much time at this place. And so when we you know, come into this place, we are ready to worship. But what about the time we spend outside of this place? What about the time we spend in our homes? What about the time we spend in our jobs? What about the time we spend in the marketplace, just kind of going through life. God has designed us to be worshipers, not just in this place, not just for an hour and a half or an hour and 15 on Sunday mornings, but he's designed that all of our lives, the totality of every moment I'm drawing breath can be spent and should be spent in service to him, worshiping him. But the terrific difficulty of this is not that just I'm preoccupied and I give my attention to this or I give my attention to that. The difficulty, I believe, is that we're surrounded amongst idols. Idols in our lives, idols around those, uh, in, in the lives of those around us, and they are calling us to engage in worship of them. So Psalm 115 gives us a vocabulary, it gives us a way of, of articulating really our response in the midst of this. So Jesse read it just a moment ago, and let's just begin to work through this psalm together. Notice when he opens it up, he has this terrific cry. Finds himself in difficulty. He finds himself surrounded with people that, that want him or her to give their heart to competing uh, allegiances. They're suffering, they're in difficulty, and he has this cry. He says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. If you want to be a worshiper of God, if you want to be a worshiper of God, then you have to recognize that your worship is due to him. His worship is not due to you. And so we worship God. We rend our worship to him. And the call in that is that he would rise up and that he would quiet the detractors, that he would quiet these areas of our lives. For what purpose? Not for our ease, but for his glory. Do you see the distinction there? So if I'm experiencing tremendous difficulty, and so if my wife and I are having a, a fractured relationship, if my job is just on the rocks, if everything in life generally stinks, and my prayer is primarily, 
God, help me to come to a place where I can be a better worshiper of you. Just kind of get rid of all these various details of my life that are distracting me. This isn't the prayer he prays. The prayer he prays is that, God, I pray that in the midst of this, your name would be glorified. And so, God, you need to accomplish your ends so that your name would be glorified. And on the basis of what? Look at the other half of 115 verse 1. He says, it's for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And so, God, would you be at work redeeming the affairs of my life so that when people see your action in my life, they would see not my life getting better, but they would see a picture of your steadfast love and faithfulness so that you might be the one who receives greater honor and greater worship and that your name might be great and not mine. Not to us. Not to us bring worship and adoration, but to your name. Do you see the selflessness in this prayer? No, in the midst of this, perhaps God is receiving glory and honor through seeing us brought low. And this is a terrific difficulty that we will wrestle with over the entirety of our lives. But the heartbeat of a worshiper is always that God's name get glory and honor. And over the course of our lives, he is moving us into that, forming us to be a person who could cry out with that out of some empty prayer. Many of us, in the first time we encounter difficulty, we have no great compunction in saying, uh, God, in the midst of my difficulty, would your name be great? Would your name be honored? But the longer we are in that vein, the longer we experience that difficulty, I mean, we just want the bad stuff to stop. We just want our lives to get better. And so where it begins to be worked out within our lives is when God is conditioning our hearts to be able to respond rightly to him so that he might receive honor and praise and glory. Can I tell you that it's completely okay if you're in the midst of this and you just feel overcome? To say, God, I feel like I'm at the end of myself. I know that my desire should be that I would cry out, not to me, but to your name receive glory. But I just want peace. I just want it to stop. You see, there comes a point in any of our lives, in any uh, encounter of difficulty, that to voice anything other is disingenuous, is false, and it's a lie. Can I tell you this morning that God is not praised by your half-hearted attempts to engender faithfulness to him. God is praised and honored and glorified in the midst of the tremendous difficulties of your life, voicing those things. My life is awful. My relationships are terrible. My Inborn delight, based on what your word says, should be to bring you glory and praise and honor. But I am empty and void, and it finds no rest. It finds no vocalization in my heart. And so our prayer in that time, in those moments, is that, God, would you give me the strength? Would you, would you give me the capacity to desire this? And I believe his Holy Spirit will work in your heart to allow you to be a worshiper. But look at how bad it is. In the midst of this situation, in the midst of of facing difficulty and feeling some inner angst towards our inability to worship God, the psalmist is surrounded by people who look at them, who look at their life, and they articulate it this way in verse 2. Where is your God? Where is your God? What good is Christianity doing for you? What good is, is giving a tithe and an offering to the church? What good is being charitable? What good is giving your heart to God? You're sicker than anybody else I've ever met. 
Things go wrong in your life at a greater speed and with greater regularity than almost anybody I've ever met. Your life really just seems to stink. If this is what it is to be a worshiper and a follower of God, just count me out because I don't want to sign up for the things that seem to happen in your life with greater frequency than anybody I've ever met. Has anybody been there? That you have non-Christian friends and non-Christian relatives and they see you going through tremendous difficulty in your life. They see you lose children. They see everything in your life head towards the crapper. And they say, look, I've got to ask you this question. Why would you worship a God who allows you to endure such things as this? Why would you give your heart and be faithful to a God who allows your life to be so terrible? And so in essence, they're asking this question, where is your God? Where is your God? And the response to this is devastating to the doubts of our heart. And it's a direct answer and a defiant one to their question. They say, where is your God? Listen to this response. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The response for a Christian is not an easy one. In some sense, it is, it is awesome and delightful to have this declaration to say our God is in the heavens. And so positionally, he's above every form of deity you might ever want to serve. And so it, it, he kind of paints the picture of this, that, that the gods of the world are down here in this strata. They, they hobnob with us. We rub shoulders with them. We know them. We engage them. But our God positionally is high and above. He is exalted above all gods. And so this is awesome for us. We, we say boldly, we are excited to say that our God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. And so when we pray, we know that our God is able to accomplish anything we ask and, and even more than we could ask, think, or imagine. Our God finds all these things in ease. He's able to bend the will of the universe towards his end. He spoke and all of creation jumped into being. He sent his son to redeem sinful and wayward humanity. Our God is in heaven. He is over all. But look at the follow-up. He does all that he pleases. Frequently, what we want is a God who is omnipotent, a God who is over all and able to do all. But we want a God who is constrained by our desires. We want a God who's constrained by our desires. So I want, I want a God who's all-powerful, who's out there, who's affecting everything on a cosmic level. But I want to go to him and say, God, my life really stinks, and I want him to jump to attention and fix it right then. And when he leaves me in it, what does this leave me? It leaves me angry. It leaves me bitter. It leaves me disappointed. And it leads me to wonder, are you really all-powerful? Or are you weak and are you needy? Scripture tells us that he is all-powerful. But God's ability to affect any and all ends is matched with his freedom to choose those ends. So seemingly, it leaves us twisting in the wind. Twisting in the wind. And so we're left with this, with this idea of what is it to be a worshiper of God when we're surrounded by smaller gods, lesser objects, and idols. So he begins to describe those idols in four through seven. So I want you to imagine, and, and, and we don't see this as much in our culture. It still exists in the world. We don't see it as much in our culture where somebody goes in and they say, look, I, I need a God who's tangible. I need a God who's accessible. I just need something to remind me 
of, of power. And so they begin to fashion and, and make this God and, and craft it, and they, they set it over here on a shelf. And so if they're encountering difficulty and they're saying, oh, whoa, this would be a life just really sinks. I know what I can do. I can go back and I can access this God. I can pour out wine on them. I can, I can praise them. I can cut myself to offer sacrifices to them. And I know where my God is unless somebody misplaces him in the midst of cleaning. But, but by and large, I know where this God is. And so that's, 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 not something, that's something that's incredibly foreign to our culture because you don't go to somebody's house. You say, this is a wonderful house. And they say, yes, this is my kitchen. This is my dining room. That's where the bedrooms are. And this is where I keep my God. We just set him right here on the shelf so nobody loses him. We don't let the kids touch him. We don't let them play with him. This is our God. Those are their toys. This is our God. Those are their gods. I'm sorry, wait, those are their toys. But he describes a culture that surrounds them that when the Israelites would cry out, our God is in heaven, he does all they please us. They would say, well, my God's right here. I can see him. He's evident. Your God's invisible. And, and I really doubt that he even exists. But look at how he describes their gods. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. And so our, our initial impression upon quickly reading this, we say their gods are worthless and diminutive. They're small, they're paltry. But notice how he begins it. Their gods are crafted in silver and gold. To look at the gods of the people of this earth, to look at the gods of the people of our culture, is to look at them and immediately to find something beautiful, to find something valuable, to find something worthy. But when we begin to penetrate, when we begin to look deeper, we find their gods are ultimately impotent. They are not able to affect change. They are not free. They are bound and they are dependent upon their worshiper to meet their every single need. And so we see this contrast show up. We serve a God who is omnipotent. He is all-powerful and he does as he pleases. They worship. They serve God's who may be beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, they are empty and void and hollow. They are not all powerful and they are not free. They are completely dependent upon their worshiper. So we begin to ask questions of, oh, what does this look like within our culture? What does this look like amongst the people that we rub shoulders with, amongst the people we work with, amongst the people we shop with and live around? The idols within our culture are shifting and changing. But we recognize repeatedly there are a few that show up. Today we stand here and we celebrate those who are graduating high school and going on to college. As a culture, we celebrate and we have a tendency to give our hearts to worshiping education. Notice that within almost everything in our lives, there is the capacity to lend itself towards becoming an idol something that desires your worship. It has the capacity to head towards this. And so education can become for us an idol. Instead of being a means to an end, a means to a better job where we might uh, serve our community better, where we might be more well enhanced to be more efficient and effective to impact those of the world, we begin to just set our eyes on education as God, as this idol. And so every grade and every test and every assignment becomes the most important thing in our lives. So everything else falls away. I'm, no, I'm sorry, I would love to share the gospel with you. No, I'm sorry, I'd love to take you to the hospital. You seem like you're in a great deal of pain, but I want to give my heart to pursuing, to studying for this test. 
So test after test, assignment after assignment, class after class, we are designed and programmed within our culture to give our hearts to worshiping education. So we take a good thing, education is a good thing, we make it an ultimate thing and we give it our heart. And my encouragement would be to you, if you are graduating and you are going off and you're preparing to pursue education, recognize it is a good thing, but it is not an ultimate thing. It's a good thing. If you don't give your attention to education, you'll be like my first roommate in college who had a full ride. He had summer training. He had job placement on the other side. It took two senators to write letters to get him this scholarship. It was phenomenal. His scholarship was so good, my truck was registered under his student ID. I got a parking ticket, and it paid for it. <laughs> Who has that scholarship? Do those exist anymore? I'm trying to get that scholarship back. I got some other tickets I like taking care of. End of the semester, he had to maintain a 2.0. 2.0. Like, you show up to class, you say, my name is, you give a half-hearted effort, you study 30 minutes before the test, unless you have one of those, like, you know, science degrees, and then you've really got to work hard the whole time. But most of us, right, most of us, our degrees, we show up, and this is kind of the effort we spend, we can pull a 2.0 half-heartedly. You got a 0.6. You got a 0.6. His blood alcohol is higher than that several times. I mean, he got a 0.6. Man, our job wants to be an ultimate thing. If you're going to make it in life, you're going to need a job. But your employer, your boss, your supervisor, they want more than just your time, 40, 50, 60 hours a week. They want everything. They want you to think about it nonstop. And so it desires to be worshipped. It desires that you give more and more of your time, more and more of your thoughts, more and more of your energy and attention to your job. Success. Success in our culture. And it's this line that keeps growing more and more and more. I'm, I'm at this position, and this is, the, this is the most I ever thought I would be in life. And then you begin to set your, your eyes, your thoughts, your intensity, and your focus, and your direction on the next position. And so you work your tail off to try and get there. Success is this thing that is fleeting. It is this thing that is false, but it wants you to worship it. Success is good, but it's not an ultimate thing. Maybe you look at it and you say, all these things sound awfully confining, as you begin to set your eyes or you recognize people in our culture that set their, their intensity on pursuing freedom. I don't want to be tied to a job. I don't want to be tied to a house. I don't want to be tied to taxes. I don't, good luck with that one. I don't want to be tied to all these things. And so freedom and adventure is what you pursue. In your pursuit of freedom and adventure, recognize that's a good thing. And God has created you to be free. He's created you with a sense of, of self-autonomy and self-discovery. But freedom is not an ultimate thing. Only God is an ultimate thing. Begin to recognize that family. Some of us set our hearts on wanting a family if we don't have one. And that becomes the ultimate thing. I want a spouse. And that is an ultimate thing for us. We bend everything in our life to getting that or to denying that we want that. We, we get married and we want to have kids and we set everything in our life around that. We gear everything towards that end. We get kids and we form everything in life around keeping them safe and ensuring their future and ex ensuring their success. 
We give more time and more money, and then when we get done with that, we give more time and more money again. Then we get done with that. Then we ask our parents for help, and we give their time and their money. Family is a good thing. Family is, is, is a unit that God has created for his glory, but it's not an ultimate thing. Only God is an ultimate thing. So we look at those things in our culture, and we say, we recognize that these are things that people in our culture readily worship. These are good things, but they're not ultimate things. And then we turn to the church and we say, oh, surely we're immune to these things. Well, let's just look at two. There's a list that we could do a whole sermon series on. But let's just look at two of them. One of these would definitely be preferences. It is good that you have preferences. It is delightful. And your preferences are good and valid and awesome. You needed somebody to say that because nobody thinks they are. And so they are, they are good and they're valid and, and they are a representation and a manifestation of of that God has made you unique. Some of you, he made you very unique, and that's why nobody validates your preferences. They're good, but your preferences are just that. They are preferences. You prefer one thing over another. But when you begin to say that my preference of this or my preference of that is grounds for separating and moving and thinking something else, then you have made your preferences an ultimate thing instead of a good thing. It's good that we have diversity. We have diversity because many of us have different preferences. But when our preferences become points of division, you have made them an ultimate thing. I think within Christianity, one of the most insidious things is that religion can become an idol for us. It absolutely can. It's easy to read through the New Testament and to see the Pharisees and be like, I would never be like those people. I would never engage in this. But let somebody step in and alter the, the order of service. Let somebody step in and, and propose that we sing a song that you don't like. Let somebody step in and suppose that we do things in a different way. Let somebody step in perhaps in the older building. Here's not so much. So none of these seats are comfortable. But to take your comfortable seat, to take your parking place, to not preach on something that you particularly enjoy, let somebody violate your conception of how religion is formed. And you begin to recognize that we increasingly give our hearts to our brand of religion, our brand of understanding how we approach God. And you have moved from being a worshiper of God to be a worshiper of the system that is supposed to, and is designed to worship him. He moves through these talks of idols and he says, they don't even have the capacity to growl or to clear their throat. Then he has this damning statement. And he says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. If you give your heart to worshiping something less than an all-powerful and free God, you worship your kids, you worship your job, you worship your spouse, whatever it is, you become like the object of your worship. You become like the object of your worship. Christianity, Christianity is bent towards leading you and conforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. This is why when we worship him, we become more like him. So when we worship these idols that we have created in our minds and rarely with our hands, we become like those things instead of like him. And so do all those who trust in him. So 9, nine through 13 the psalmist begins to give us a picture of how then not to turn our hearts towards idols, but to how to turn our hearts towards God. And can I tell you, this is a repeated battle over the course of your life. None of us have ever arrived. 
but occasionally we get beautiful glimpses of what it looks like to give ourselves to this. I had an opportunity this week to visit one of our members who is in uh, assisted living. And so I go in and, and I'm visiting with this person and uh, she invites me out into the hall. You've got to meet my friends. And now you have to pray with my friends. And, and we're walking through there. And she's like, so-and-so, come over here. You need a hug. You need to meet my pastor. And so I was not a celebrity. She was. I was just along for the ride, variously used to articulate prayers. But we recognize that this is a person that over and over and over again, that despite incredible difficulties in life, was giving themselves to the trust of God. This is what he calls us to. Over the course of our lives, no matter how long or how short, he calls us to be worshipers in every sphere that he places us. How are you being a worshiper? Look what he says in verse 9. He says, O Israel, and then he says, O Aaron, and then he says, uh, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. Why? Because he is their help and their shield. Our trust in God is not some obligatory statement with no grounding in fact, no grounding in reality. Our trust in him is commanded and it is predicated upon his character and his action. Your call to trust in God is not some blind deal. You're not trusting in somebody who is unable and who doesn't have a track record of, of coming to bear and honoring their promises. Uh, we have three kids. One of them is, is not good at honoring what he's been told to do. And he told me yesterday, it's so hard to remember to think. <laughs> I said, buddy, I missed one of these things where you find him doing something and you said, did you, did you not think how that would turn out? And he says, dad, it's so hard to remember to think. But God calls us to remember his blessings, remember his provision. So he turns to the nation of Israel and he says, trust in the Lord. God is both acting to protect you, he is your shield, and God is working to defend you, he is your sword. He turns to the priestly order and he says, trust in the Lord, he is defending you and he is on the attack for you. And then he turns to those who fear him. So this is a curious deal and I just want to track this down for a second. Isaiah 56, starting in verse six, those who fear the Lord, so those who aren't a part of his covenant promises, look what he says. He says, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. So who aren't of this initial people of God, but have bonded themselves to God. They are a part of the people of God because they have invested themselves and leaned forward. He says, these I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. We begin to see the way of provision for you and for I, for all those who are not of the covenant people of God brought into the blood of Jesus Christ, that, our, that his house should be called a house of prayer. For whom? For all peoples. This is who we are. This is where we are. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those who are already gathered. We see in the goodness of our God that he is fighting and that he is protecting us in our future. Amen. In, in the midst of everything in this perception Israel, in the midst of everything going wrong in our lives from our perspective and our point of view, God is fighting for you. God is safekeeping you. He is in this for you to make you a worshiper of him. Because look at verse 12. 
Verse 12 says, the Lord has remembered us and he will bless us. So you track down through this and he does the same thing. The Lord bless the house of Israel. The Lord bless the people of Aaron, the house of Aaron. The Lord bless the people who fear him, both small and great. And so our question becomes, how in the world is he blessing us? I don't feel particularly blessed. My life does not feel like it's receiving the blessing of the Lord. How then does this look? Christian, this morning, the greatest blessing you receive It's not a better job, it's not more money, it's not health. The greatest blessing you receive is in the person of Jesus Christ, him crucified, him resurrected, him atoning for your sin. This is the greatest blessing that any of us could receive. It is the forgiveness of sins. This is why Jesus in Matthew 5 is able to say this in terms of what it is to be blessed, starting in verse 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What does blessing look like for you in this life? Standing in solidarity with your God. Standing resolute, trusting in his promises. Matthew 13 gives us this picture of the person who recognizes what the blessings of God look like, who recognizes what the kingdom of God looks like, Jesus coming, Jesus redeeming, Jesus at work in my heart. Starting in verse 45, he says, again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And so he paints this picture. You have this, this person who's out and they are working and it is their job to sell pearls. And so they're looking for the best quality pearl and they want to sell it for the highest price they can get. He says, this person who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What does it look like to be a worshiper of God? It looks like this. Though everything in your life be stripped away, be taken from you and be removed, still you worship. And you can't do this on your own. And you can't get there on your effort. He's making you to be this. He's leveraging your experiences and the people around you and his testimony of faithfulness and his character to get you there. The Lord is making you into a worshiper. So he continues on in verses verses 14. And 15 and following, he says, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. To what end and how able is God able to bless you? He's the one that created this whole mess. He created it beautiful and we sullied it with our sin. And he redeemed it with the blood of his son. How powerful and how able is this God to bless you? All powerful. Infinitely so. He is not impotent and bound. He is omnipotent and free. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. In Genesis 1.26, we find that we are created in the image and the likeness of our God, and that from this he turns and he gives dominion, rule, and authority to humanity. 
So how do we exercise dominion, rule, and authority over the earth? We steward it. We care for it. In the midst of all the ways that we engage in this world, we recognize that every action in your life can be and should be an act of worship to the creator God. So every time that we're moved and asked to engage in, either in work or in just enjoying nature, all of these things should be a response to God of worship predicated based upon who we see him as. He created everything. He resides in the heavens, but he gave all of this to us so that we might worship him here, so that we might worship him now. Verse 17, our time of worship is limited. All of us will die at some point. Every person has an appointed time to be faithful here and now. But each of us, if the Lord tarries, each of us will die. There'll come a point where you no longer breathe, where you're not able to be resuscitated, and then we stand around and we say kind words over your casket. How are you worshiping him today? What does it look like for you to worship him today? We need to recognize there are idols that take residence in our hearts. It's very difficult to see them because we've so craftily taken our hands and made them into something that if someone else were to look at them, they would say, that is beautiful. But when the Lord looks at our hearts, he knows that the shrine that holds the majority of our worship is a shrine that houses only our idols. It looks different from the world's idols because it is tailored by us and it is placed there and it is enshrined and it is cared for by the enemies of God. Satan's delight in his desire is that he would sidetrack the people of God by giving them glorious idols of lesser value to worship. Some of us need to spend a considerable amount of time being broken before God, saying, what are my idols? What lesser things do I give my heart to? What things that everybody in my culture and everybody in my church and my small group and in my family looks at and he says, these are amazing. But God, in your heart, in your reality, you look at them and say, this is an idol. I tell you, I can't look at you, I can't know you, and I can't spend time in your life and, and definitively tell you what your idols are. But everything in our life has a capacity to become an idol. And only God can destroy idols. And when God moves through and he systematically removes the idols from our lives and he's making us a worshiper, we say this in verse 18, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, you have made us to be worshipers. You have made us to be men and women who declare the goodness of one king, King Jesus. That in plenty and in want and in difficulty, in adversity, you still call us to worship you. Father, I pray for the people of this room and pray for myself in this time. Peel back the silver and the gold off of my idol and reveal it for what it is. Something I formed and fashioned with my hands. Something that's competing for my affections for you. 
something good, maybe even something great, but it's not ultimate, it's not you. God, would you commit this act of grace this morning by leading your Holy Spirit to convict me of the truth and reality of of these idols in my life so that I might be a true worshiper of you. Father, we want to pray for those in this room who have yet to submit their hearts to Jesus. Through the way they live their life, they're worshiping something else, their autonomy, their freedom. God, would you lead them to yield their lives to you? Would you continue to tug at their heart to pull at their sense of freedom that in Jesus, with abandon, they might declare him Savior and Lord, that to Jesus they would live their lives, to him they would pledge allegiance, for he alone is worthy to receive all glory and honor forever and ever. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.